Our scripture reading this morning is found in Romans 1, verses 18 to 32. It can be found on page 939 of your pew Bible. And please stand for the reading of God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and bird and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. You can find your way back to Romans chapter 1, and please pray with me as we open God's word together. Gracious Father, What we have just sung and what we are about to look at in your word is a sobering and a humble doctrine. Lord, give us ears to hear you this morning. Give us eyes to see you. Let us behold your holiness and your mercy, which come together in the face of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we concluded uh, our series that we've been going through this past year looking at what we call the gospel for all of life and how the, the good news of Jesus applies to different aspects of life. And the final focus of that series was the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, this morning we have what I would call an addendum to that series. It's not an encore because nobody asked me to keep going. But as our new series through 1 John doesn't start for a couple of weeks, and as I was thinking about what we covered uh, through that last section of how the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, um, 
it struck me that there was something missing from that conversation. And not only from that specific conversation, but from a lot of conversations today about evangelism and missions and disciple-making. The good old topic of what we are actually saved from, namely, hell. Now, it's not hard to understand why we don't hear a lot about that subject today. Uh, It's awkward and uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, We treat the doctrine of hell kind of like Cousin Eddie in Christmas Vacation. We know that technically we're related, but nobody really wants to admit it. Uh, Everyone cringes when he shows up. Whatever he does just causes trouble, and so it's just a lot easier and safer just simply to avoid him. And frankly, no one would cry if we were ever able to kind of prove he didn't belong in the family. That's kind of the way we think about this doctrine. Uh, The picture of hell in the Bible is terrifying. Uh, The Bible warns us that all who persist in sin against God and refuse to come to Jesus in faith and repentance, remain under God's wrath, will be found guilty before him on judgment day, and will be sentenced to an eternal condemnation that is variously described in Scripture as the fiery furnace, the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That's an awkward subject. That's a a terrifying, horrifying picture. And it's a hard pill to swallow for many of us. It's, it's hard to swallow when you, you know, have people that you know and love who think you're crazy for believing such a thing. And it's especially hard to swallow when people you know and love want nothing to do with Jesus and therefore are facing this unspeakable horror. It's offensive, it's, it feels unfair, maybe even repulsive. One author describes that however much we tell ourselves that God must condemn evil if he is a good God, and that those who love God must endorse that condemnation, as soon as these pictures present themselves to our minds, we turn away in disgust. Uh, and as a result, many of us tend simply just to ignore or marginalize Uh, the question of hell. Uh, We don't deny it necessarily, but we don't uh, draw any attention to it if we can help, you know, um, because of, you know, either how it makes us feel or how it might make somebody else feel. I feel that pressure big time. Nobody wants to be known as one of those hellfire and brimstone preacher guys. Uh, and, And so we're just content to fly under the radar, to maybe hint at it, Um, but not really go there, kind of like leaving the problem of hell out of a series on evangelism, like I just did. Others, in their effort to reconcile kind of what the Bible says and how they feel about what the Bible says, uh, try to soften the doctrine a little bit. And so 
the biblical portrait of hell has been classically summarized as eternal conscious punishment. And so to soften that, people try to maybe reduce that definition somehow, maybe to remove the eternal part in what's called conditionalism or sometimes called uh, annihilationism. Those who persistently refuse God's love and his way of life in the present world will simply cease to exist. Uh, This is where John Stott, uh, an otherwise brilliant biblical scholar, where he eventually landed. Or maybe, uh, maybe we leave eternal in there, but we remove the conscious part. So people who refuse all whisperings of good news, all glimmers of light, after death become at last beings that were once human but now are not, creatures that have ceased to bear the divine image at all, like animals. This is where N.T. Wright kind of lands in his attempt to settle uh, the tension. But as pastor and author Thor Ramsey writes, this view of hell amounts to no hell because a hell you can't remember is no hell. It falls short of the biblical portrait and it's not really much of a punishment after all. It's kind of like God saying to us, I'm going to teach you a lesson you will soon forget. It it just doesn't do justice to what Scripture is describing. And, of course, there are others who've gone beyond revising to simply flat-out rejecting hell. Uh, From Marcion in the 2nd century, who who kind of viewed the God of the New Testament, as he called it, uh, a God of love, and, and saw that as a different deity from the God in the Old Testament, a God of wrath, and sought to remove any sense of judgment at all from the Bible. Uh, Not much left over, frankly, uh, when he was done. Uh, To the birth of Unitarian Universalism here in New England in the 18th and 19th century, which in its founding kind of rose up out of a rejection of the necessity of Christ and the reality of hell. To former evangelicals like Rob Bell, who decries the biblical portrait of hell as, quote, misguided and toxic. So, Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes the, the predicament we're in quite well when he says, it can be said with certainty that there is no doctrine which is so generally repugnant to the majority of men than this particular doctrine. It's the one we don't want to think about or talk about and the one that, frankly, we judge others for bringing up. And so why hold on to it? Why not revise our doctrine, or at least keep our crazy uncle from showing up and ruining the party. As one author puts it, what do we really lose if hell freezes over? Well, the honest answer is everything. I'm not exaggerating. Without hell, or more generally speaking, without God's wrath, God is not holy He is not just or righteous. He is unloving and apathetic toward the world's wrongs. He is undeserving of our worship. Without hell, the gospel is not good news. Jesus is not Savior. The cross was unnecessary, a waste of blood. And we have no reason to obey God, to love our enemies, or to make Christ known to others. Hell is not an incidental doctrine. It's not like a a photograph or a picture on the wall that you can just kind of 
when you get tired of it, you can take it down and replace it or, or just remove it altogether. It's a lot more like the wall itself. If you think of a load-bearing wall in a house, there's a lot more to the house than that one wall. There are a lot of other doctrines in the Christian faith. But if you remove the load-bearing wall or one of the load-bearing walls, what happens to the house? The whole thing begins to cave in on itself. And not only is a healthy doctrine of hell essential to our knowledge and worship of God, it's one of the most important motivations for evangelism, for making Christ known to those who don't yet know him. Apart from Christ, men and women, friends, family, and neighbors remain under the holy wrath of God. Eternal conscious punishment. That ought to break our hearts. That ought to make us uncomfortable to think about. That ought to move us to want to make Christ known. Eternity hangs in the balance. And this fact of God's wrath is one of Paul's motivations in his eagerness to preach the gospel to the Romans. Look with me at Romans 1, 15 to 18. Paul says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So follow the logic with me. Paul is eager to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of the gospel because he knows it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He knows it's the power of salvation to everyone who believes because that gospel reveals God's righteousness by faith for faith. And he knows that this salvation through faith is necessary because the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. So the fact of God's wrath motivates him to preach the gospel of Jesus. And so it should for us. But for that motivation to, to move us, we need to understand better the danger that our non-believing family, and friends are in. And so what does the Bible say about the wrath of God? Why is it actually uh, necessary? And what does it look like? And how should that move us to make Christ known? Well, the passage that we're looking at in Romans 1 gives us one of the most concise portraits of God's wrath, his holy anger against sin. And these verses uh, divide roughly into two parts. So verses 18 to 23 show us the reason for God's wrath. And verses 24 to 32 show us what is really one side of what that wrath actually looks like. And what we see here is that God's wrath is his righteous response to human rebellion. Hell is God's righteous response to human rebellion. And one of the reasons that we should not be ashamed of the gospel. And so we'll look first at the reason for God's wrath in, in verses 18 to 23, which we might call the righteousness of hell. 
the righteousness of hell. Didn't think we'd be going through a sermon on hell the Sunday after Christmas, but here we are. Verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice first here that that God's wrath is a response to unrighteousness. It's not kind of a, wow, I'm cranky today or woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Uh, He's not lashing out in anger. His wrath is triggered by the unrighteous actions and attitudes of people. Something wrong has happened and he's responding to it. Men and women are are doing wrong. They are disobeying his will. They're denying his glory and they're hurting each other. And so wrath is God's righteous response to those who are guilty, those who are unrighteous, those who are in the wrong. This is the language of the law court. One of the reasons that the idea of hell or God's wrath is so unpopular is that it feels so judgmental. That's because it is judgmental. God is issuing a judgment. But rendering a judgment is only a bad thing when the wrong verdict is given. If someone were to you know, sue you wrongfully, take you to court for something you didn't do, you're not going to be upset with the judge if he renders you not guilty. You're going to be thrilled with the judge for doing a good job, for judging justly and righteously. And so when we think of God and the question of heaven and hell, our real problem isn't that God makes a judgment. Our problem is that we believe he's making the wrong one. We don't think that his judgment is righteous. To condemn people to hell is to issue the wrong verdict. But is it? What kind of verdict should a righteous judge give to sinful humans? What are we indicted for and did we actually do it? In verse 18, Paul describes the essence of our unrighteousness and therefore the basis of God's wrath as, quote, suppressing the truth. It's not simply that humanity is ignorant and therefore acting blindly. Our ignorance is a willful ignorance. To walk against God requires denying and suppressing what we know to be true in the deepest level of our heart. According to the Bible, humanity has no excuse to deny God the glory due his name. He has left himself a witness in what he has made. His invisible attributes, namely his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. You think about it, you can't look at the beauty of nature uh, without being moved in some way. Nobody stands on the coast watching a storm roll in from the ocean and the waves just pounding the, the sand, and thinks to themselves, man, I'd rather be watching Chopped right now. I mean, you're just mesmerized by this display of power. Nobody wakes up the morning after a blizzard and looks out the window and just kind of, eh. And what do we do? We, we take pictures of it and we post them to Instagram and Facebook and whatever and compare how much snow we got with our neighbors. We're moved 
by this magnitude. Nobody stands at the Grand Canyon and kind of shrugs their shoulders thinking, I could do better. (laughs) We don't. We see these things and we know that we are small and that something or someone is very big. The mystery of the ocean, the majesty of the mountains, the unending expanse of the heavens. There is something glorious about that. There's something that moves us to worship. God's fingerprints are all over it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And no one honest can deny this. Yet we do. Instead of acknowledging God and trusting him and treating him as God, humanity has chosen to suppress the truth, to hide it, to deny it, to disarm it, to keep it under wraps. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. A willful ignorance. Because if God is true, then we owe him our allegiance and our worship. If we can remove God from the picture, we can live however we want. We can take the glory that he alone deserves and we can give it to something else. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And so that's God's indictment against humanity. Idolatry and rebellion. God made us in his image to worship him as his children and servants of his kingdom. He warned us from the beginning that rebellion and sin would bring about judgment and death. But left to ourselves, we have ignored God suppress the truth, and instead given our allegiance, our worship, our affection to images of his creation, whether ancient idols or modern ones of our own making, things that, that can never satisfy or save us, with the result that apart from God, our life is basically a repudiation of God. As he says in verse 25, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And listen to the result of that in verses 29 to 31. This is what life looks like when we suppress the truth of God. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now, all of us can find ourselves somewhere in that list, if we're honest. I mean, I may not be a murderer, but what about gossip? I might not consider myself a hater of God, but what about disobedient to parents? find it ironic that Paul puts that right next to inventors of evil. And if you have toddlers, you know why. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I, so brazen is human rebellion 
against God. Paul summarizes the passage this way in verse 32. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they understand that if you do this, this is the just punishment. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that sound like life in a fallen world? Is God right to condemn sin? Is his verdict just, righteous? If we expect a human judge to revoke the license of a drunk driver or to remove a child from an abusive situation or to require restitution for theft or a life sentence for murder, then we cannot expect a holy God to wink at sin without ascending to the height of hypocrisy. It's amazing that when we're wronged, we demand our right to justice. We want things to be put to rights. It's our obligation. When God is wronged, we call him a monster for wanting the same thing. We want more rights for ourselves than we want God to have for himself. But this is his world, and we are his creation. He is our king and our father. If there's any sense in which we can speak of God as holy, as righteous, or even as loving, then he must judge sin. As one scholar notes, God is utterly committed to set the world right in the end. This doctrine is held firmly in place by the belief in God as creator on the one side and the belief in his goodness on the other. And that setting right must necessarily involve the elimination of all that distorts God's good and lovely creation. And in particular, all that defaces his image-bearing human creatures. If God loves this broken world, he must put it to right. And to do so, he must deal with sin. Hell is God's righteous response to unrighteousness. So what does that judgment look like? What, what shape does hell take? What are we seeking to rescue people from through our witness to Christ? In verses 24 to 32, we see one side of God's wrath, what we might call his passive judgment. Uh, there is a final judgment coming in the end, which we'll talk about in a moment, a day when God will actively punish those who are outside of Christ. But Paul tells us here that that God's wrath is already being revealed. Hell is being poured out in part and in advance by simply allowing the unrighteous to do what they want to do, handing them over to their self-destructive, self-chosen path. Notice the repetition in verses 24 and 26 and 28. Therefore... Because they suppress the truth of God, therefore, God gave them up. There comes a point when those who continue to suppress the truth, to turn a deaf ear to God's love, who insist on their own way, when God finally says to them, as C.S. Lewis put it, thy will be done. Have it your way then. He simply takes the leash off and allows them to dive headlong into the sin they desire, and its self-destructive results. But 
Paul describes here as impurity, as the dishonoring in their, of their bodies, dishonorable passions, exchanging natural sex relations for unnatural homosexual ones, that they, quote, might receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. He hands them over to their own self-destructive will. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so there is a sense in which those who are walking in unrepentant sin are already tasting the first fruits of hell through the results of their own choices. Much in the same way that those who belong to Christ experience the first fruits of heaven through our new birth and our regeneration, our relationship with Christ. But we would be wrong to stop there, as though that's all that we can say about hell, which is where some people want to stop, Lewis among them. There is also an active side to God's punishment. And we see that more clearly in other passages of Scripture, and Paul gets to it in the next chapter in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. There is a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And that's that the scary pictures that we sometimes talk about. This fiery furnace, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But at its heart, what's underneath all of those metaphors, whether they are you know, real or just metaphorical, I don't know. But what they represent is eternal separation from God. That is the great terror of hell, to be cut off from God and his presence, which is life and love and everything good for all eternity. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1 that a day is coming when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes in that day. God will deal actively with sin. But you think about those pictures, and it's not hard to wonder, isn't, isn't that a bit overkill? I mean, is an eternity of suffering a bit much for 70 or so years of sin? Many have wrestled with that question. But the gravity of our sin is not weighed by how bad we are compared to the person next to us, nor is it measured on an earthly scale. The gravity of our sin is weighed according to the holiness of the one we have offended. And because God is infinitely holy, our sin is therefore infinitely evil. Our punishment is so great because the one we have offended is so great. If you spit on a random person walking by, they will probably have some choice words for you. But then you will most likely both go about your day 
and not really think much of it after that. If you spit on the President of the United States, you will probably be taken down by secret security, hauled in for questioning, maybe have charges pressed against you, and your email will be monitored for the rest of your life. Now, it's the same offense. Why such a different reaction? Because of the office and magnitude of the one you've offended. Multiply that by infinity, and you begin to understand why hell is so hellish. The horrors of hell show us how incomparably holy God is. But, but, they also show us how unfathomable God's love is in that he was willing to send his son Jesus, his own son, to bear that incomparable punishment in himself on our behalf. And that's the real marvel of the whole thing. That as horrible as hell is, that's exactly what Christ came to save us from, and it cost him everything to do it. And when we think of the cross, sometimes we think of it primarily in terms of the physical pain that Jesus endured. The brutality of the beating, the sting of the, of the thorny crowns, the, the pain of the nails piercing his hands and his feet, the agony of hanging there for hours, barely able to breathe. And we would be right to marvel at the physical pain that he endured. But the real suffering of the cross is what he bore spiritually for us. The cup of God's wrath filled to the brim with his holy anger, the full weight of it, the eternal horror of hell poured out on our righteous substitute in our place. Think about Jesus' prayer in the garden. Remember what he prayed, Lord, if it if any way possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about? The cup in the Old Testament is the metaphor of God's wrath. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus willingly took the cup filled with hell, your punishment and mine, and he drained it to the dregs on the cross such that there is no wrath left for those who belong to Jesus. No fear of punishment. No weight of hell. It's finished. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 3 when he tells us that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation for our sin, as a sacrificial offering that bears the wrath of God in our place. He took the punishment for us. And it's only through the cross that God can be righteous in dealing with sin and merciful in forgiving sinners. There's no other way. If he just overlooks sin, he's not righteous. But if his son doesn't come and take our place, there's no mercy. But in the cross, we see both of them together. And this salvation, this deliverance from God's wrath is offered to all who will believe in his son. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The gospel of Jesus, what he has done as true God, true man, in our place, as our King and Savior, that gospel really is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It really is. To all who believe. We must have faith. And so God's wrath is his righteous response to rebellion. It's a punishment that Jesus willingly took in our place to deliver us from the wrath to come. So how do we respond? If this is true, that that God's wrath is his righteous response to human rebellion, how should we feel about that? And what should we do? Two brief implications. The first implication is to walk in humble obedience. To walk in humble obedience. Lest anyone wag their finger in self-righteous condemnation over the people described in Romans 1, Paul continues immediately in chapter 2. Therefore, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you walk away from Romans 1 feeling better about yourself, you're doing it wrong. There's not a single one of us who can read what we read there and not see ourselves in the mirror. The only thing that we have to hold on to, the only thing that we can cling to is the kindness and forbearance and patience of our God, the grace of God who gives us through Christ something wonderful, even though we actually deserve something terrible. And that grace ought to produce humility and obedience. It ought to flood us with gratitude and joy, knowing what we deserve and, and reveling in the fact that, that we've received something else. It ought to fill us with the desire to serve God, not become a badge of self-righteousness. Oh, look at me. I made it. You didn't. Or a license for selfish indulgence. Well, God's going to forgive it anyway, so who cares if I do it? And if that's how you're using God's grace as a license to sin then you'd better ask yourself the hard question of whether you really know Christ. The second implication is the urgency of witness. So the reality of hell is that either someone trusts in Christ and finds forgiveness for their sin through him who bore hell in their place, or they ignore Christ and bear the penalty themselves on the final day. There's no other way. 
Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And hence, the urgency of the gospel. If we take God and his holiness and his love seriously, we cannot stand idly while thousands upon thousands are in danger of eternal punishment. Our hearts need to break, whether we're thinking of our neighbors or we're thinking of unreached people groups around the globe. Clearly, the glory of heaven that we talked about a couple weeks ago, clearly that ought to motivate us to make Christ known. There's no better gift we can give than to help someone meet and treasure Jesus. But the terror of hell ought to motivate us as well. And we see that in Paul's ministry in Romans. The idea that his fellow Jews, most of whom had rejected their own Messiah and were therefore uh, remaining under God's wrath, that brought Paul to deep sorrow. He writes in chapter 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. His love for his people was so great and his understanding of the horrors of hell so great that if it were possible for him to just kind of take their place and he be cut off and they could know Jesus, he would do it. That's how much his heart was moved in compassion for the lost. When's the last time my heart broke like that? When's the last time your heart broke like that? I mean, do I ever lose sleep over friends and family who don't yet know Christ? And if not, what does that say? I and mean, what does that say about my view of God's holiness, my view of hell, my appreciation for all that God has done through the cross? I mean, on the one hand, God is sovereign. He's the one who has to do the work of changing a heart. I can't, in and of myself, change anybody's hearts. All I can do is pray and proclaim. But on the other hand, that's exactly what God has asked me to do, to pray and to proclaim, to make Christ known. Romans 10, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. When we think about this awkward, heavy subject, we cannot allow ourselves to be ashamed of the gospel. For the wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So we must be faithful to pray. We must be willing to proclaim. Evangelism really is life and death. And may we do everything possible to help our friends choose life. I want to pray. But as we do, I want to give you a few moments to pray specifically for friends and family that you know 
who do not yet know Jesus. Again, normally we devote the last Sunday night of the month to gathering for, uh, to pray for the lost and for gospel renewal in our area. But since we're not doing that tonight, I want us to take just a couple of minutes to do that silently right where you are, to pray for those who do not know Christ. And if you happen to be one of them, if you do not know Christ, uh, I appeal to you to pray to receive him this morning, to let this picture, let this promise, really, of God's judgment wash over you, to understand the reality of sin, and to let at the very same time the flood of God's grace through the cross to wash over you and to wash all of that sin away, to understand what it is Christ has done, the magnitude of his love, to pray and put your faith in him. So let's pray for the lost. Ask God to break your heart. Ask God to save friends and family and to make himself known. And I'll close us in a few minutes. Gracious Father, you say in Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Lord, would you fill our heart with that same compassion and desire that people would know you Lord, we confess our sin. We confess that there is not a single one of us who deserves to be called your child. In small ways and great ways, we have offended you, even though we may not have realized it at the time. We are broken. We are weak. And yet Christ is our strength. Christ came to bring wholeness Christ is our righteousness. We praise you that when you look at us, you don't see the failures. You don't see the insecurities, the fear. You don't see our guilt and shame. You see your son. We are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Lord, what an incredible gift. May that gift motivate us to worship you, to obey you. And may it, may it move us, Lord, to make your name known. Would you be pleased to turn the hearts of men and women to yourself through our love, through our friendship, through our witness? Don't let us treat them as projects. Let us love them as people made in your image the best thing that you could possibly give them being yourself. And so, Lord, fill our hearts with love and humility, with joy and urgency. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.